And the more distributed immutable and ephemeral or DIE a system is or a component of a system is, I would argue that it becomes more and more anti-fragile. Now, the goal here is to understand what parts of your environment are DIE and what parts of your environment are not DIE. When it's not DIE, it requires some type of protection. And that kind of protection is what we know in the security community as the CIA triad. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Sunil Yu, CISO at Jupiter One and creator of the Cyber Defense Matrix and the DIE Triad. And we're having a great conversation on this notion of anti-fragility. It's not the same thing as resilience, and it seems to be the better model for the information security world. Sunil goes into it in depth, and it's a model that truly challenges a lot of our precepts. Sunil, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Hey, Alan. It's great to be here on the ranch. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So why don't we get started by you telling us a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job. So my background in cybersecurity has been, I don't know, I'd say over 30 plus years where fiddling and trying to break and fix computer systems and networks and whatnot. So it's been, um, I don't know, it's been a long journey for sure. It, uh, I don't feel as old as I as I actually am, but uh, a lot of the youngins that are out there, you can run circles around this. But at the same time, I think uh, I have a good a good amount of uh, experience built up where I'm hoping to be able to now return that to the community in a way that uh, help, helps us as a community to get better at cybersecurity. So that's actually also a part of my day job then. In the context of that, I, I work for a company called Jupiter One, and I'm the CISO and head of research there. And part of the reason why I joined them is because I wanted to put some of the things that I built uh, through what's called the cyber defense matrix into practice, something that makes it easier for us to to use and to apply within our everyday um, jobs as CSOs and security practitioners. Well, quickly, the cyber defense matrix, in, in case uh, your listeners aren't familiar with that, it's a simple framework that I created to help organize everything in cybersecurity, or most everything, I should say. And it's a real simple framework. It's a five by five uh, bingo card. It's a security. It literally is like a security bingo card. And uh, the two dimensions of the bingo card are uh, the things that we do, um, which are the NIST cybersecurity framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, and then five types of assets that we care about, uh, devices, applications, networks, data, and users. And so it provides this really simple, uh, hopefully memorable framework that helps us organize the things that we do and understand potentially when we might have gaps in our program or in the market, or whatever else it might be. And for our listeners, that's a really cool tool. I've used it myself in several contexts and situations. So definitely uh, check out the Cyber Defense Matrix. Uh, that is one Sunil gives freely to the universe. I wanted to talk about your, your article you wrote recently about cyber resilience. And you basically say that resilience is not the goal, and that resilience, as it's defined, sort of is, is oftentimes misperceived, that there's sort of a common misperception about it. So why don't, we, why don't we first talk about what is resilience to you? What is the misperception about it? And why don't you think it's the right goal for us as cyber practitioners? Sure. It's interesting that the term resilience has really uh, caught on in the, in the mindset of many practitioners and in um, the security community writ large. I mean, consider even the RSA conference last year, their key theme was resilience. So first question is why now? Why, why this intense focus on resilience? And I would argue that 
what's driving this interest, a part of this interest is the recent spate of ransomware attacks. We see all these ransomware attacks, and now people are saying, we got to be more resilient. And so, well, what do we mean by that? Okay, what do we mean by resilient? And what are the specific actions that were taken to be more resilient? Well, it turns out most people, most practitioners that I've talked to, or at least I've heard from, that think about ransomware defenses and trying to be more resilient, they point to an age-old strategy, which is backup, right? They say, okay, if I have backup in place, then great, I am resilient. And I would argue that is actually the wrong way to think about resiliency. Within the resiliency engineering community, they actually have a much more... um, much broader view of resilience. And that is one of adaptability, of being able to evolve to meet these challenges and needs and to get better over time. But oftentimes, we don't actually recognize that part of the resiliency equation. We just think of backup as a resiliency mechanism. And if you think about what backup does, it just brings you back to your previous state. Okay. This adaptation or getting better is oftentimes missed in our conversations about how do we become more resilient. And so I thought it'd be interesting for us to really think about separating these goals out uh, because the misperception of saying, okay, if I get back up, I'm resilient. I want to have a cleaner, brighter line around what crosses the line from just back up to something that's becoming more and more resilient or rather Again, this this broader concept that we see in the resilience engineering community where you're actually getting better and better over time. All right. That's a great way to look at resiliency. But in your article that I read, uh, you referenced a gentleman named Taleb. I can't remember his first name. I should have written that down. But Taleb introduces this idea of anti-fragility, which is different from resilience. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this anti-fragility? So it's uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he wrote this book called Anti-Fragile uh, several years ago. And he brought forth this notion, uh, which, by the way, there's a lot of people in the resilience engineering community that uh, don't like his term, anti-fragile. But I've actually uh, embraced it and like it because it creates this clear distinction, this bright line that I mentioned before. So what is anti-fragile? Well, it obviously is meant to contrast against fragile. But when oftentimes we ask about uh, the opposite of fragile, if I ask you just out of the blue, what is the opposite of fragility? What's the opposite of being fragile? Oftentimes we think of the word resilient or robust or uh, something of that sort. Mm -hmm. But he was, I think he had the same sort of view that the term resilient doesn't always convey the sense of getting better. And uh, as a a clear distinction of that, he said, okay, well, if you have something that's fragile, you usually label it uh, with something that says handle with care. Mm -hmm. If something is anti-fragile, you actually label it with handle with carelessness. You actually want people to handle it roughly, okay, and to shake it and to uh, try to break things. And I, I think there's a there's a really interesting paradigm that uh, is drawn from that in that when you uh, have something that's fragile, um, harm that comes to it weakens it and, and causes it to break. When something that's anti-fragile, when harm comes to it, uh, it gets better and stronger and uh, and as a part of the getting stronger, really, that's in many ways uh, how I would see the uh, the intent of what the resilience engineering community have wanted to see in resilience engineering, which is that things get better and get adaptable and, and better over time. So then going back to the concept of ransomware and backup, you know, backup doesn't actually get better, right? It's just re- restoring back to a current state. 
back to this, the previous state. And in that previous state, is it getting better? Or is it just, again, coming back to what it used to be? And I think Taleb mentions this as well in the sense of uh, this form of resilience, and I'm putting resilience in air quotes here, is sort of like the phoenix. The phoenix burns up, um, dies, and then returns back to being a phoenix again. Right. So has the phoenix improved? Has it gotten better? Not really. It's just gone back to where it used to be. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people may choose to uh, uh, focus on that kind of resilience where they just bounce back to what they were before. But I think in the context of the environment that we live in, you don't want to be in a situation where you just bounce back to what you were before, especially in the context of ransomware. And, and unfortunately, there's been some stories around some victims of ransomware who basically restored from backup, so to speak, or paid the ransom and got their data back, but didn't change, didn't get better. Right. And so what do you think happened? Right. They got hit again. They got hit again, right? So, you know, what's, what point is that and if, you're, if you're not going to get better over time? Taleb's concept is not designed per se for information and data security systems, right? That's not what he was talking about when he invented this idea of anti-fragile systems. So actually feeding on those attempts is, you know, you, you mentioned like you want to be shaken. Like it's not just we can handle being shaken. Please shake me is kind of the sticker on there. So when we translate that to actual data systems, data security, what does shake me look like? <laughs> That's basically my question. There's going to be some disagreement here with some of the folks in the resilience engineering community. But the way, one of the ways that I thought about what does shaken look like is going to be something like chaos engineering. Okay, so we look at chaos engineering, and it's a shaking of the environment to see where do we have parts of our environment that are not anti-fragile enough, or rather, where do we see in our environment uh, places that may be fragile, but we didn't realize were fragile. We don't want to necessarily shake things when we know it to be fragile, because what's going to happen is it's going to break. Right. Right. We know it's going to break. There's no point in shaking things that we know to break. But if we're not sure if, we're, if there's a, a very complex system for which when we shake something, it's not evident that uh, something might break or we think nothing's going to break, then techniques like chaos engineering, uh, where it's a, in a controlled sort of shaking experiment, you have an ability to really understand that which is in your environment that is uh, not as anti-fragile as you'd like. And, and one of the ways that I thought about this is you mentioned at the very beginning at the outset um, I, I created this thing called the DIE triad. And DIE, for those listeners that don't know what that means, it's distributed, immutable, and ephemeral. DIE. And the basic premise behind it is that we want to make more of our systems be DIE, distributed, immutable, and ephemeral. And the more distributed, immutable, and ephemeral, or DIE a system is, or a component of a system is, I would argue that it becomes more and more anti-fragile. Now, the goal here is to understand what parts of your environment are DIE and what parts of your environment are not DIE. When it's not DIE, it requires some type of protection. And that kind of protection is what we know in the security community as the CIA triad, so confidentiality, integrity, and availability. We have a, a set of systems that I also use the cloud native terms of uh, pets and cattle here, mm -hmm. but uh, you have you have pets that require CIA, okay, and then you have cattle that are designed to be DIE, and so when it comes to uh, techniques like chaos engineering, what you're really wanting to do is to say, I think I have this herd of cattle that are largely 
uh, anti-fragile. But when I shake it, um, what I hope to discover are those things that are more pet-like, uh, perhaps more pet-like than I would want, and end up causing some sort of issue within my environment that causes it to be more fragile than I had hoped. And so the goal of the shaking process is to really understand where are my pets, where are my cattle, do I actually have uh, an environment that has some pet-like nature to it? And if there is, let's go in and find ways to make it more cattle-like. And my view on that is let's make it more DIE-like, make it more distributed and mutable and ephemeral. Right. Okay. So even the pets can benefit from DIE if it's if it's done with, with purpose and with forethought. Well, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, and the reason why I say that is once you have a pet, it's hard to not turn it into cattle. <laughs> so, right. I mean, if you think about it in the sense of just a, a, an actual pet <laughs> right. is truly your <laughs> pet. the slaughterhouse, Fido. <laughs> yeah. You know, people aren't going to necessarily want to treat it as such, right? Yeah. So that, that's one of the challenges that we have, I think, in our security community, where as we go forward in terms of how we manage our security posture and our security program, we spend a lot of our time on pets. And it's like having, it's like being a veterinarian where you have no pet controls whatsoever and you're overrun with pets mm -hmm. uh, in your neighborhood or whatever else it might be, right? It'd be a nightmare if you're having to deal with so many pets. And But once you have a pet, it's kind of hard to let go of that pet, which is why I think it's important for us as, as security practitioners to think about how do we avoid new pet creation, limit that as much as possible, and instead, whenever someone is trying to create something, try to keep it as cattle-like as possible. I, th I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. I just maybe didn't, uh, didn't wasn't, wasn't it as eloquent. <laughs> the, the idea is, you know, and I'm, I'm going to ground back down to reality here and get off the pet metaphor for a moment. I've got specific sets of data that are the crown jewels that are super precious to me. Uh, and I'm going to have those housed and hoarded in a lo location that's discreet, unique, protected, all those good things. I don't want to have the company financials on every SharePoint in the company. I want to have the company financials in a, in a locked up place that only a handful of people can get to. But in certain instances, and I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, I'm picturing sorts of data where you are better off with that distributed nature, where you're better off making the pet more redundant and spreading it out. That's what I was trying to get to. And unfortunately, I can't think of a good example off the top of my mind. Oh, I can give you some examples there. Okay. So, and data is always um, one of the hard things about this pet and cattle metaphor, uh, because we have lots of data that is essentially pets, and it's hard to think about how do we design it to be more cattle-like instead. And as I mentioned, once you have a pet, it's kind of like you always have a pet. And data in particular is, is more challenging because it's easy to make copies of that of that pet, so to speak, right? Your, your PII is easily copied and, and sent out to all these different places. It's like letting your pets go out unneutered and not spayed and you know, having their way, right? right? So in the context of what I've seen, uh, let's say, tools that help us apply the principles of DIE for data, okay, would be things like uh, federated learning. So what's federated learning? It allows us to keep our pets in our own uh, homes and not let it propagate out, but still be able to operate uh, efficiently on that data so that we don't ever, so that we can, for example, do machine learning on top of it. Mm -hmm. An actual example of that would be uh, photo recognition or, or face recognition on your phone, where the picture is never sent back to Apple or Google, but it's done on your phone. And through that, through their federated uh, capability, Google and Apple still 
uh, are able to learn how to do better facial recognition without ever seeing the photo. Right. Okay. And so that's an example. Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah. And there's a general category of technologies here that help us, um, instead of having to always create data pets, instead create data cattle. And uh, ironically, the acronym for the um, this class of technology is PET. It's privacy-enhancing technology. <laughs> so there's all these privacy-enhancing technologies that help us actually create more data cattle and not have to always rely upon having to always propagate more data pets. I get so it. So privacy-enhancing technologies like uh, tokenization or homomorphic encryption or uh, differential privacy and synthetic data. Um, th- there's all these different techniques that are out there, which are really cool. Uh, and once you understand the, uh, how to apply them, it gives you a new recipe or new design pattern that lets you avoid data pets and instead focus on data cattle. All right, let's pause there very briefly and hear a word from our sponsor. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix. Analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S dot com. Thank you, Uptix, for sponsoring this episode. I'm just thinking in the real world trenches here. And um, yeah, so we've, we've covered some of the technologies now and we've covered PET. This is some good stuff. The anti-fragility uh, shaking, if you will. I'm picturing the real world of that. Let's stick with our data model. Let's just say we're strictly talking about data that are, you know, on your cyber defense matrix, it's data we're protecting. It's data we're talking about being a pet or a cattle. I'm picturing, you know, your shaking is is basically what? Baz, purple teaming, pen testing, like all the all the good things to stress the system, try to find the weaknesses, try to acquire the data, get to the data. These are the kinds of things I would test if I was just going for traditional resilience. But for anti-fragility as well, I would be expecting to see some natural defenses take place. I would expect to see automated reactive behaviors. Maybe, you know, there's some SIM and some SOAR and some maybe even dynamic uh, controls implementation, right? Is that is that kind of the model we're getting at? Well, no, actually, I would. So this is another misconception, and and one that I may be going on a limb on here. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the term resilience conveys a certain meaning, but uh, this may be inconceivable. But I don't think that word means what people think it means. Mm-hmm. I think in the context of resilience, uh, we oftentimes uh, conflate security and resilience together. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we say, okay, if I want this to be resilient, then I need to make sure that it has the necessary protections, detections, and response functions around it so that if there's an intrusion in it, then uh, I can kick it out and blah, blah, blah. And I would argue that's being secure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And security, again, is CIA. Right. But if I'm really shooting for resilience and to go beyond resilience to anti-fragile, what I'm actually shooting for is DIE. So I have DIE and I have CIA, and I consider them opposites, all right? Meaning the more DIE I make something, the less I need to CIA something. Right. So let's go back to what you mentioned earlier. If I'm going to try to be more resilient uh, with a, with the shaking aspect, am I doing more BAS? Am I doing uh, more pen testing and so on and so on? And my answer is, no, that's only just to be able to ensure that you have the necessary CIA protections, mm-hmm. but that's for your pets. Mm-hmm. If it's for your cattle... I don't actually really care, okay? 
I don't really care that uh, it's protected at all. Right. Okay. So think about this in the context of even your body for a moment. There are um, parts of your body that it's more pet-like, and there are parts of your body that are more cattle-like. The parts that are pet-like are things like your brain, your brain cells, and whatnot. Right. Parts of your uh, of your body that are more cattle-like is like your skin cells.、Mm-hmm. And if you think about how your body has developed defenses. It has defenses for your brain, but not really much for your skin. So, then, well, the question is, what does shaking look like in that regard? Shaking is not,、uh, in my view, as much pen testing and and、uh, breach, you know, simulations and all that kind of stuff. But rather, what happens if you destroy that?、Mm. Okay, what would happen to your environment? So, think about this again from the standpoint of, of ransomware.、Uh, what's happening is a destruction event. It's ultimately focused in the in the five functions within the cybersecurity framework, resiliency, and、uh, the DIE framework. In my view, is focused on the recover element. So it's not focused on protect, detect, and respond, but rather, how well do you recover? And I think there's two ways to think about how we do recover. The old way of doing recover, and the old、uh, and how I think m- many people think about resiliency is backup.、Mm-hmm. Right, you backup your systems and you restore from backup. And that's the old way of、uh, of resiliency and the old way of recover. Then there's a new way, and the new way is what's reflected in the DIE triad, and、uh, this new way of how we think about resiliency going forward, that how we get better. And I think this new way is best compared to in the context of even how we how the mass market thinks about backup today. Now, if you go into the mass market today and say,、well, "What do you think of backup? Do you do backup much?" They're like, "No."、Uh, do you want to pay for backup? Not really.、Um, it seems like a chore, right?、Yeah. But then, if you ask them, well, do you use iCloud? Yeah, I do. And con- consider the value proposition of iCloud. They, I forget if they actually even mention backup, but they, the way that they they frame it is, would you like to be able to see your photos from any device anywhere in the world? Right. And you're like, sure. And would you be willing to pay for it? Yeah, I'd be willing to pay for that. It's essentially backup, right? But it's in a very business aligned. Way that shows immediate value to the people who are using it, and you know, it's 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 a new way of doing、um, resiliency、mm-hmm. because it's business driven, it's business aligned. I mean, it, it shows direct value to the consumer as well as to the business. And again, it's a very DIE sort of mindset yeah, for how、yeah. we do resiliency. Interesting. You know, it was funny too when you first talked about Baz and purple teaming and these things not being what we're wanting. That that it's CIA versus DIE. My first thought: You're going to laugh. I actually the word blockchain popped into my head for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Me, who makes fun of blockchain at every turn and every possible place it's suggested, I went DIE. Blockchain would help with that. Yeah, I, I, I get the joke. I don't want to necessarily suggest that blockchain is a solution for anything in particular. <laughs> but,、um, but funny enough, blockchain has the attributes, at least has the attribute of immutability、mm-hmm. and distributed. A, a distributed. Right. Well, a, a distributed blockchain, of course, yeah, then has、yeah. the D、uh, part of it. Now, if you talk to、uh, Dan Guido at Trade Old Bits or anybody else who's really studied the issues with blockchain, it's not ephemeral, right? So you commit a, a contract into the blockchain and into like Ethereum and whatnot, and it's there forever, right? And if you're not very careful with what you've committed as far as a smart contract is concerned, and and there's a flaw in it. Well, you're kind of screwed、uh, forever、right. because it's not ephemeral.、Right. Um, so blockchain is D and E,、uh, D and an I, but not the E. And since we know 
yeah, since we know it's not the E, we then have to be conscious of the security protections around that. Right. You're back to CIA if you don't have your E. You have to do some form of CIA. Yeah. In, in this case, just making sure that the smart contract is done properly. Um, but it's less than you would otherwise have if you had if you didn't have D or I. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So there I am once again. <laughs> Convinced blockchain doesn't solve our problems. <laughs> it was the first time it popped into my head as a possible solution. So thank you for disavowing me of that notion. All right. So let's switch gears here a little bit. Uh, Taleb also talks about a barbell strategy. And I wanted to get a little understanding. What is the barbell strategy and how does that apply to information systems and data? Sure. So the barbell strategy visually is, uh, of course, you have these weights on the end. And in the middle, the bar itself, you don't put weights there. So what are the ends? The ends, as I would describe it, would be on one end are things that are fragile. And the other end are the things that are anti-fragile. So his barbell strategy is really applied to investments. Uh, when you make an investment, there are things that you want to keep safe. And um, you, you put some am amount of money into those investments that are generally going to be safe. And you know they're going to be safe and they're going to provide a reliable return. And then there is a set of investments that you want hyper growth, hyper aggressive, and you take you know extreme risks on the other end. Okay, so that's that's the barbell investment strategy. And I thought it fit nicely into this notion of how we should treat things that are fragile and how we should treat things that are meant to be anti-fragile. Now, what does that mean for the things in the middle? Well, if I use the term resilience in the way that, uh, in the old way of thinking of it, in terms of just bouncing back, okay, what does it mean? It means that we should not invest, okay, in keeping things the same, mm -hmm. okay? And, and this is this is one of the conclusions, but it's a crazy conclusion, but it's this notion that we shouldn't, uh, does that mean we should not invest in backup, okay? And <laughs> that might sound crazy in this day of ransomware, but I would argue that backup becomes a crutch. What we really should think about is how do we design our system so that it never needs a backup? Mm -hmm. Okay. Think about it actually even in the context of the human body. What, what's backed up, so to speak? Okay. Um, like your cells, there's not a backup of the cell. It's actually just regenerated every time. Right. All right. So what does that look like in our IT environment? What does that look like? when we, instead of having to focus on the middle, the backup strategy for the middle, uh, what do we do to instead design systems so that they're constantly destroyed and recycled and so on and so forth. And in the process, we reduce our need for the older approach of just being resilient in the sense of just uh, bouncing back to what we used to be. And I think the more that we choose to invest in that middle, uh, the less we have the opportunity to both improve Okay, on the anti-fragile side, mm -hmm. and the less we put res uh, resources towards actually protecting the things that really matter on the fragile side. I get it. So anyway, this barbell strategy, I think, it, it provides a really interesting uh, decision point for us too. Okay, so if you can't invest in the middle, that means you have to invest on trying to be anti-fragile or fragile. Okay, and again, here being fragile is uh, unfortunately, a state that you, many of us are in for some of these pets that we we have. Okay, and again, once you become, once you have a pet, it kind of remains fragile until you decommission it. Right. <laughs> this notion then of let's not invest in the middle, but rather either invest in uh, securing and and protecting those fragile things, 
or to make our environment even more anti-fragile so that uh, it gets better over time. Sunil, this has been some deep thinking on the problem, and I want to thank you for making me feel like the dumbest guy in the room. It's a really good place to be. And uh, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you one question that I ask every guest, which is, what surprises you the most in cybersecurity? To kind of wrap it up, I think it, it's similar to something that it, the whole narrative that I just went through, which is um, there's, a, there's a serenity prayer that uh, we all know from uh, St. Francis of Assisi. It's, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So what's interesting, what, what surprises me about security is that there are what, what uh, a colleague of mine calls problems and predicaments. Problems and predicaments, okay? There are, problems are things that you can solve. Predicaments are only things we can manage. And that serenity prayer is kind of fits that ma- mindset. Uh, give me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. Those are predicaments. And the courage to change the things that I can, those are problems. And the wisdom to know the difference. And in my mind, um, what surprises me about security is that we don't actually know the difference. And we times, sometimes try to solve predicaments and bash our heads into the wall, hoping to solve a predicament when it's never meant to be solved. It can only be managed. And so I think even in the context of we look at the, the anti-fragile, fragile piece, the things that are fragile, that's a predicament. Whereas I think the things that are anti-fragile, um, those are problems that we can solve and that can help us get better and better and better. Um, and then here's the other thing that's uh, interesting. Predicaments aren't solved, but they are displaced. Think about back in the 1910s, um, one of the biggest problems that uh, cities had was, what do we do with all this horse manure? And they could shovel it as much as they want, but it kept accumulating and growing, and uh, they were in a predicament. I think we know the solu- what happened. They didn't. They never solved the horse manure uh, predicament. Okay, they never solved that, but it got completely replaced by something else. Right, and so we're in a similar. <laughs> That's right, and we have a whole new set of issues that come up come up as a result of that. But nonetheless, I think we're in a similar situation with uh, cybersecurity, where we we have all these predicaments, and we can only manage them until something new comes around that completely displaces it. And the deep thinking just continues. Thank you very much for that answer. Very profound, Sunil Yu. CISO at Jupiter One, creator of the Cyber Defense Matrix and the DIE Triad. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>